Welcome to this last installment of Litsema Talks for 2020. As discussed two weeks ago, Litsema Talks has sought to offer the views and expertise of Litsema's skilled and experienced staff on a menagerie of topics we believe those working in a business or responsible for managing one may find enlightening, intriguing, educational and valuable in a time of unprecedented uncertainty. This episode is the second in our two installment series year in review, highlighting several of the many insights raised by our consulting and executive team over the course of the year. We begin this episode with Keith Fanny Kirk, Executive, M&A and Partnerships at Letsema, who discusses how Letsema being moored to a set investment philosophy played an important role in steering the group through the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Another great question. I guess I'm just trying to think of the best way to answer that. You know, like, like I said earlier on, we've made so many mistakes and we're the product of those. As you say, it, it, uh, you become who you are through the mistakes you make. Perhaps the best way to answer that is, is just to unpack what our philosophy orientation is as an investor or a partner. And I guess part of the reason there is that our orientation and philosophy will hopefully endure in the long time and outlive a single crisis. You know, so it's, it's hard to point to any single tactical intervention that we've had daily, you know, which may or may not have had an impact. But I guess the things that are important to us from a from a partnership perspective and, and orientation is we're fundamentally and unapologetically values based and committed to the purpose of using business as a catalyst for social change. When you have alignment around purpose, it makes doing the hard things easier. You know, all, all jobs have have parts that we don't like, but mm-hmm. I guess if, if you if you're guided by something else, it, it just makes it easier to stomach. So that's the first point, and and I think I'll probably cover four. Is the second is is up until this point we've invested our our own balance sheet, and I'll touch on that again a bit later. We're also fascinated to the point of obsessed with institution building, which by extension I guess means that we are committed to to the long term. We we want to build something institutional that outlives all of us. And the last point is is that we're obsessed with being value-adding partners mm. from a place of institutional strength. With that as some context, it might then be useful to reflect on how th- this philosophy may or may not have benefited our partners through this mm. period of crisis. You know, I guess our long-term orientation, coupled with our own very conservative balance sheet, in investing our own capital to this point, it's been invested from a from a position where our group balance sheet has been completely unleveraged. Mm. And we've also used very little debt in the actual individual transactions themselves. And what that means, this is not mm. something we set out to achieve. It, it's just the way we like doing things, is that we're not dependent on any regular cash flows from our portfolio businesses to service any debt or leverage. And I think what that allows is our portfolios are then free to operate without that additional pressure. The fact that we've we've been conservative, again, because of past experiences, has meant that our businesses feel like we have this long-term orientation and we're not looking looking to them to service a debt obligation, which is pressure you just do not need at the best of times, let alone during a period of crisis. So I, I certainly think that that... That has given our, our partners stability in knowing that we can make decisions that will that will get us through this period and and mm. you know maybe bear fruit down the line you know rather than having this need to service an obligation with the benefit of hindsight I'm sure that's been something that's been useful to the businesses that we've had and I guess also to ourselves we, we maintain the ability to think long term because we don't have pressure created by leverage 
I guess our, the, because we value institutional strength, the prior investments, let's say, itself have made in IT, uh, in IT infrastructure systems, enterprise ERPs, quality management systems. You know, if I, if I think about how that may have benefited our portfolio businesses that we've been able to extend that, that in those investments to, it's just the speed at which we, we were able to literally overnight shift to remote working during hard times. What that allows you to do is bring stability, continuity, and the, and the speed of decision-making because you have all the things you need to at your fingertips. Um, and then on the flip side, in, in good times, what that allows you to do is then to scale effortlessly because you have the same things in place. And, and if we're going to have an outsized impact and, and meet the purpose of, of business as a catalyst for social change, we need to have institutional strength that can see us through the dark times, and that also allows us to scale uh, during the good times. And then lastly, I guess just the the pure syndication of decision-making is, you know, no one has a monopoly on knowledge, uh, particularly during a sort of once-in-a-generation type crisis, you know, and and whether that's at the entrepreneur level uh, or the business owner level in their interactions with with Letsema or the sharing of best practice between our portfolio businesses, I think the quality of the decision-making across the board has benefited from not being lonely, not being the sole owner of decisions. You, you're able to to leverage expertise and and syndicate decision-making and share best practice. We've learned, as Litsema have learned, an enormous amount over this last four months, and, and we would not have learned that had it not been for you know the great partners that we've had, seeing how they've coped in dealing with uh, the various things they've had to, had to over this time. That's a long-winded answer, and, and I didn't really want to talk to tactical day-to-day interventions. So those happen all the time, and we, we win mm. some, we lose some. I think our, our sort of philosophy and orientation as a partner, I think, has benefited our, our partners because because we're conservative, we're long-term, and, and we want to build something substantial and institutional. Partnering with other businesses is becoming an increasingly popular way for organizations to access new markets, customers, and revenue streams. In this clip... Nirajan Pivendran, partner strategy at Litsema, talks about what should be in place for a business to consider entering a partnership and how it goes about finding the right partner. That's a very good question, Adam. And I think uh, you find a lot of partnerships taking place, but you know, always the first step is you need to understand that partnerships need to be leveraged for the right opportunity mm. and at the right timing, you know. So one of the big things, for example, is opportunities can be very specific. So you could have a tender opportunity where two organizations come together in order to bid and meet the minimum thresholds or a specialty. Or you could partner at a broader level where you are looking at growing within an industry vertical or a theme. You know, it could be 4.0 services, for example. So you get different types of partnerships. But I think the opportunity that defines it is whether, you know, are you looking to grow your market share? Are you looking for a channel partner for access? Are you looking to do a joint venture for an equal, equal strategy of growth between two businesses? You get different formats. One of the more interesting things is we've recently partnered with Watercom on a smart SO program. And I, that program specifically looks at how does the two parties to come together, create bundled services that are focused around Industry 4.0. What has been what is clear with that is the consulting houses bring a wealth of knowledge in terms of the industry vertical and advisory knowledge around 4.0, whereas a company like Watercom, on its other hand, has infrastructure and channels and a large client base that will be also open to looking at 4.0. So I think bringing these two together create a I guess you can call it recipe or product. What's also very interesting is 
before you look at partnering, you need to see as an organization that you also are ready to partner. Many companies, one, they're either not ready from a leadership or management point of view, and that can be a stumbling block. The second thing is not commercially sense checking the opportunity. So if you jump into partnering before you've really validated an opportunity, you could be in for a sort of a rough ride later down the line. What's very interesting, it's sort of been, uh, personally for me, it's been a bit of a learning in terms of how to qualify partners. Mm. Uh, and I think once you go through these learnings, you you realize partnering is actually quite a strategic topic. Uh, and it shouldn't be purely a tactical means of sorting out one-time opportunities. Mm. The most successful partnerships are the longer ones and the longer-term opportunities. And part of that is having as a business, when you do your strategy for the organization, is to spend some time with your exco or executive team uh, and management team thinking about your partnership strategy as an organization. Mm-hmm. Why that's so powerful is that will link to your strategy and it can help you either in terms of, as we spoke about, you know, growth strategies in yes. supporting and growing into new areas or defensive plays, right? In terms of if you're noticing higher levels of competition in an area or segment, how do you partner or work with players to defend that space or create more value-add services, for example, that the customer, mm-hmm. current customer base might appreciate. So partnerships start off with creating a good partnership strategy that is linked to your overall business strategy. The second thing is on a more tactical level, it's to create a partnership framework that your teams, the execution teams, often the strategy, partnership strategy is the one periodically updated, mm-hmm. but you need a, a very usable guide on the ground to assess and qualify partners. And again, there's a couple of steps that we've identified, and I think we'll share that in an easy format for Mm -hmm. businesses to to look at. But if I step through it very quickly, you know, firstly, it's the opportunity validation and rationale for partnering. The second thing is you want to check for partners' capabilities and the ability to complement or enhance your offering, right? That is the real reason for partnering. The third one is you need to understand the credentials and track record. And then you also want to do a quick DD, right? A due diligence on each partner. And the reason being is this this is one of the things which has created a big issue in, in our South African space where companies haven't done the due diligence check well enough. And you've realized there's a lot of corrupt players or uh, incompetent players that are saying they do certain things, but they actually don't. And I think it's very important for the protection of your brand to do the double checks on the due diligence. Sort of a a next step after that is to really get to meet the company. So once you've done your checks, you approach and meet the organization. And the first thing is you need to look at the leadership management or the team that you are discussing topics with and see, do you connect on a human level? Mm. Are there sort of shared values? Is this seemingly, is there an ethical connection? You know, is there, do you share the same level of ethics, right? Mm. I think that is such a critical part if you realize you do not connect with the teams or you can see this is not being taken seriously, you have to make a call, right? I think the next step there is really then discussing further details with the partner in terms of their value add and integration into the opportunity that you're working on. And then to double check the mutual benefits for each party. So you have to go into partnerships where you benefit as well as the other party. Often you find large business, small business partnerships where the large business maybe abuses the smaller partner, if you can call it, to an extent where the smaller partner has to obviously, given that it's working with a bigger brand, put more effort into it, you know, put more investment and time to really bring up its brand 
But at the same time, you need to make sure both businesses are mutually benefiting, right? So you need to check that upfront. And then lastly, I think what's important is obviously there's the paperwork and the agreement to partner if everything looks good. And I think the administration around it is is purely a good hygiene practice. You could obviously go through all these steps. And if you haven't kept your administration in check, uh, I've seen, you know, where partnerships can just fall down where purely because the agreements weren't done properly or invested later on. Digital transformation is a critical process for organizations to engage in if they wish to take advantage of the digital ecosystem driving the modern economy. However, it is a complex process rife with difficulties. Here, Jason Levine, Senior Manager in Atsema's Customer Marketing Practice, point points reasons why digital transformations fail. Okay, so that's a great question, Adam, because so much money, effort, energy, etc. is invested into digital transformations and the expectations arising out of the desired future state a company could have are great. You know, companies pin a lot on the success of these kinds of digital transformations. The failure rates that you mentioned are, are certainly not just in my experience, but if one sort of consults pretty much any research on the subject, you'll find that the territory is that roughly 70 to 80 percent of all digital transformations, and this is really a, a global purview, fail. They fail to live up to expectation. Now, I suppose what one has to do is just define what, what do we mean when we say fail? So failure typically means, and these are kind of the, the metrics they looked at in terms of these studies, is that the business value envisioned from the money that was invested was not realized. There was not the envisioned return. So they didn't get a return on investment. And, and secondly, the second way that they looked at these is in terms of the objective set out for the transformation. So from a revenue perspective, it's easy enough to uh, to sort of measure whether you achieved uh, the sort of return you were looking for. But uh, as I previously mentioned, there are other kinds of objectives you may want to realize out of these, such as realizing greater agility, strategic agility in the organization, um, uh, developing a more responsive uh, kind of organization, a more data-driven kind of organization, for example. So when mm-hmm. companies don't actually achieve these kinds of outcomes that they try to Uh, that then is considered a failure because you've invested typically an enormous amount of money in a significant and holistic change program that hasn't worked. That's that's highly problematic, particularly in uh, what is today for most organizations uh, a fiscally constrained environment. So one certainly wants to uh, try and avoid those failures where possible. So the idea behind this is to essentially give you some insights, both from my experience and also for, uh, based on a, a, you know, a lot of research, uh, et cetera, that's out there. In terms of what some of the most common reasons are that uh, these transformation fails fail. Now, it's important to point out that I'm going to provide three reasons. Therefore, these reasons are not exhaustive. Um, with an endeavor uh, on the scale that a digital transformation is, there's a variety of factors that can Im- impact whether they succeed or not. So given Mm -hmm. the time constraints here, what I'm going to give you is a fairly simplistic view um, of what these challenges can be. But notwithstanding that fact, these are the ones that I believe are most highly associated with most failures that occur. Let's get into the first one. Uh, The first one probably almost always needs to be there, uh, and that is leadership. Now, that's not to say that if a transformation fails, one can 100% pin the fault Uh, on leadership. Uh, That's not what I'm saying there. As I've previously mentioned, there are a number of variables uh, that can actually cause them to fail. But the point to be made there, as I think as most people readily understand, leadership um, of all the variables are the one that have the greatest influence on whether that 
initiative or program is going to succeed or fail. So leadership are always most responsible for these things. Uh, and there are a number of things that can go wrong in that respect that can directly contribute uh, to the failure of these sorts of programs. So there are a few that I want to mention briefly. The first one and the one that I've certainly found to be most common is when there exists a lack of alignment in respect of vision and goals. Now, firstly, from the point of view of vision, for a transformation program of this nature, it's incredibly important that there is a compelling vision that drives the program that everyone unites behind. Everyone understands, everyone buys into and unites behind. So that's, that in a, in, a, in a sense is a requirement in and of itself. The second thing is that strategic direction comes from leadership. It cascades down into the organization from the leadership. The operationalization or the execution against that direction uh, is what ultimately will deliver the results of both the business's corporate strategy and of the transformation program at well, right? So it follows that if what's being cascaded down is not entirely congruent or aligned with the original strategy or intent, then those objectives are unlikely to be met. Most organizations or large organizations use, for example, a balanced scorecard to provide a strategy map. A strategy map mm -hmm. essentially shows the linkages between um, objectives throughout the, the main strategic objectives, uh, usually in four dimensions, uh, throughout the organization, and what the cause-effect relationship is between those various objectives. Now, that strategy map makes it clear that unless everyone works together and collaborates in alignment with those objectives, that theoretically and technically and practically, in fact, those objectives will not be met. And so when you have this lack of alignment at a leadership level in respect of either the vision or the goals associated with the program, it almost will follow that it won't work. So having that alignment is critical. The second thing is around commitment uh, to the program. Uh, and this was something interesting I experienced that I think is probably fairly pervasive. If you imagine a large organization that's been around perhaps for uh, you know, several decades and is very successful, let's imagine it's very successful. Mm -hmm. you, you're now sort of approaching them or they're discussing the topic of transformation of change. What one can encounter in some cases is reluctance, a reluctance to believe that what has historically worked for them is now starting to not work for them. It, it's almost unbelievable to them that the recipe that got them to where they are now has to change. Uh, and that can be very difficult. Now, anyone in a leadership position is in a critically important change agent for driving uh, the transformation that's required. Mm -hmm. But when you encounter people who are reluctant to believe that that change is required, you're clearly not going to get that energy for them. Uh, and uh, I'll give you a practical example of this. I uh, once consulted with a, a large uh, global financial institution. Part of the leadership was absolutely adamant that the transformation needed to occur and was going to occur. Um, and as part of the process, we went in and, and interviewed all of the leadership and uh, up and down and across the organization. And we found some leaders who were absolutely adamant that all of this was hot, there was no real need to change anything, and that what they had always been doing will always continue to work, and they simply couldn't accept that there was any need for change. Now, what's going to follow from that is that that person is going to be an antagonist in the process and is not going to sort of align with what needs to be done. So that will then start to become um, a cause of failure in that particular program. So that mm -hmm. commitment from the leadership team uh, based on their buy-in and belief in the program is, is absolutely essential.
Sustainability has become increasingly important to the way business conducts itself and goes to market, with agriculture among those at the forefront of this change. Our last episode of the year saw us discuss the topic of sustainability with Will Kutsia, Managing Director of Botanical Natural Products, who in this clip enlightens us on Botanica's four pillars of sustainability and why they matter to the way they do business. I think that this is basically the, the DNA of what makes our organization. And this is something that we've molded together from influences from our employees, mm. from our shareholders, previous shareholders, from our customers. We've put all of these things into a melting pot and seen what comes out. And these four pillars, as you refer to them, uh, are basically the, the DNA that's, that builds Botanica. So just to give you a bit of background, when we started our company, we were dealing with German shareholders with French shareholders, with Dutch funders for our business. We're South African, uh, um, Afrikaans, and our staff all comes from a local tribal trust land, and they all are uh, Pedi and Sepedi speaking. So through all these different nationalities and, and cultures, what we realized is that we had to all speak to each other in our second language. So English was the, the language that we started the company in, and we realized that very quickly there would be misunderstandings, there would be miscommunications because everybody was using their second language, whether you're German, French, Dutch, Sepedi or Afrikaans, everybody's going to be open to a situation where there would be misunderstanding. Yes. So for us, we needed to get the essence of our business in place that everybody understood if we have these things, then we can all uh, at least forgive each other's misunderstandings and miscommunications and move forward. So the pillars that we work on are based on this adaptability and sustainability. And the first one is to look at environmental sustainability, to ensure that the environment that we're working on, uh, from a geographical uh, point of view, from a climate point of view, from the resources that we're using, that these aspects are sustainable. And what I mean by sustainable in this mm -hmm. context is that they're actually in a better position after we've been working here as opposed to how we found them beforehand. Now, that's quite a lofty ideal to ensure that if you're going to be working the land, you're going to be planting products, you want to leave it in a better state. This is not the normal agricultural outlook. So yeah. this sustainability will be measured on our carbon footprint, will be measured on the water usage and quality, will be measured on the soil quality um, and availability and see what type of impact we've had on that over the period of time that we, that we work the land. The second one is related to the fact that we're based in a very remote and rural part of Limpopo province, about 20 kilometers from the Limpopo River. And right next to the farm that we operate on is a tribal trust community of almost 1 million people. Now, these 1 million people, you can imagine, live in socioeconomic circumstances which are dire. Low incidence of employment and employability, very high incidence of HIV AIDS. And what we often find is that this unemployment leads to a whole lot of other social uh, challenges down the line and down uh, different generations. So our second pillar is focused on social development. How can we not only help the community, but we're not altruistic NGOs, we're a, mm -hmm. we're a for-profit business. We have to look at how do we develop the people that we want to employ in the future. And that's a very long-term goal. It's not a short-term turnaround. Mm -hmm. So... Social development looks at intergenerational development, looking at how do we now get involved with schools, with creches, with 
offering uh, employment opportunities to young school leavers that would either have to move to the cities or to a mine or somewhere else just to get a menial job. How do we look at employing these people and training them and making them employable so that they can have a life of meaning and enough of an economic benefit in the areas where they live to make a positive change? The third one is is what I mentioned earlier, which differentiates us from a from an NGO or from a nonprofit, is financial viability. It has to be viable to work. We're not an NGO. We're not a company that's focused on handouts. We would rather have a much more direct and and open relationship with our customers, with our stakeholders, with our shareholders, with our staff, which says there's value being transferred. And in that sense, if there's value being transferred from an employee to to the company, the employee needs to be remunerated fairly. Mm -hmm. But the same way is only if there's value being transferred to the customer, will there be a financial impact for the company? So that's the third one. Is, is looking at financial viability and making sure that there is uh, a profit motive and a profit focus for the company. The final pillar that we look at is more of a, a general aspect related to all of the, the three above. And this is what we refer to as respect, yes. is to say, listen, we have to have respect for everybody that we come in contact with, whether it's a client, whether it's an employee, whether it's a manager, whether it's some external regulator, whether it's a consultant, whether it's a partner, like like in the case mm. of Cerebell, we need to have respect for everyone that we get in, come in contact with. According to us, that can only happen if we have respect for ourselves. So mm. we need to respect ourselves to say we are a professional business. We expect more from our staff and from ourselves throughout the process. And in this way, by respecting each other, I think this final pillar really supports the first three. So if I can summarize them in a nutshell for you, it's environmental sustainability, social development, financial viability, and all of these are put into that melting pot with with a good dose of respect. That will conclude this final episode of Letema Talks for 2020. We wish you, your loved ones, and colleagues a restorative holiday period. We look forward to seeing you again in 2021. Thank you for listening.